Welcome to Flip the Script, your go-to podcast about health disparities. My name is Max. My guest today is Dr. Helena Hansen. She's a professor of anthropology and psychiatry at NYU. I'll let her tell us a little bit more about herself. Thank you so much, Max, for having me. I am indeed in psychiatry and anthropology at NYU, and um, the focus of my research that brings me into both departments is addiction. But I don't do your typical clinical addiction research. I don't do randomized controlled trials. Um, Really what I've been doing is asking questions such as, how did the current opioid epidemic become white? We kind of take for granted that uh, this is a quote-unquote new face of addiction. Mm -hmm. That's what the newspapers are reporting, right? Um, But I became interested in... um, opioids, opioid marketing, regulation, what was responsible for who was taking um, opioids a long time ago when I was a medical student at Yale, Mm -hmm. working on a randomized controlled trial of buprenorphine, (laughs) otherwise known as Suboxone. And then as I chipped away at the story, it got more and more interesting. Mm -hmm. And so since studying addiction and opioids as first a medical student, then and a professor slash anthropologist, um, what have you been finding out um, in terms of, you know, patterns of addiction or patterns of drug use and such? One of the things that has been most interesting to me is to understand how drug policy and pharmaceutical marketing work from the perspective of whiteness, mm-hmm. because it's second nature, I think, to me, at least growing up in America to think about the racial politics of drugs and drug policy in terms of black and brown. Mm -hmm. So who's being criminalized, who's being demonized because of drug use, even if they're not necessarily using drugs at a higher rate than anyone else. Um, You know, I grew up understanding that there's a definite political content to the image of who's an addict. And I also saw in my own family the realities of addiction in African-American communities. Um, But I understood that what my uncles encountered going through their addictions was very different than what, say, my white classmates in college who were using just as many drugs were Mm -hmm. encountering. Um, As one of my my friends and colleagues up at Columbia, Carl Hart, likes to say, uh, our university system is basically a safe zone for white drug use. The police force at universities across the country are basically college police forces are hired to protect white college students while they use drugs and keep things safe for them. So, um, so you know, I grew up with this consciousness that there was a racial politics, but I always thought about it in terms of oppression of black and brown. Mm-hmm. And I didn't think about white drug use and the way that white imagery around, around drugs and who's um, a risky person to be taking drugs, who's Mm -hmm. a risky person to be prescribing narcotics in a medical setting, um, how all of that stuff is cultivated and maintained. Because drug policy is a very potent tool for maintaining the the social hierarchy in our country. It's long served that purpose, you Mm -hmm. know, for a hundred years, definitely. And so how have you found, though, that in terms of uh, drug policy and marketing, how have... uh, pharmaceutical companies sort of used their marketing tools to create either a strata or divide in terms of how they decide to distribute or put drugs on the market? So what I 
uncovered through um, what's now amounting to hundreds of interviews with a range of people from addiction scientists and addiction treatment advocates to Mm -hmm. pharmaceutical executives and policymakers and prescribers and patients. Um, I discovered a pretty complicated picture of things that uh, are intertwined, that kind of work in concert. So I, I talk about it in terms of technologies of whiteness when I look at the history of the current opioid quote-unquote crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, the current the generation of patented opioids like OxyContin that are said to have started off this whole cycle in the mid-90s, 96 is when OxyContin was approved for use for quote-unquote moderate pain conditions. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was actually approved by the FDA as a minimally addictive opioid pain reliever. Um, OxyContin came about during the decade of the brain. And this was President Bush the first brain child. <laughs> no pun intended. But the idea was that um, in an era of some really big profits in the era of uh, in the area of psychotropic pharmaceuticals, that the NIH was going to devote its funding to understanding the um, neuronal level mechanisms of addiction and um, for to developing biotechnology and pharmaceuticals to target those mechanisms. So the idea was to repackage addiction as a chronic relapsing brain disease. Mm-hmm. And with that, there was this fantasy of a magic bullet that somehow would work on the reward system um, and, for example, with opioids, make an opioid pain reliever both effective for pain and also non-addictive. So it was in this this moment of a lot of magic bullet thinking that OxyContin was approved, but it was also approved at a time when the imagined consumer of OxyContin was a white middle-class patient going to a primary care doctor's office in suburbia or in rural America. Right. That whole story was Rosh Limbaugh. Um, at the time, as yes. a perfect example. Even before OxyContin's approval, there were um, there was a prescription opioid increasing use of prescription opioids among affluent people. Mm-hmm. And when OxyContin came along, um, the company, because of this fan- fantasy of magic bullet um, technologies, that the sustained release capsule of OxyContin was going to protect people from addiction somehow. Um, ignoring the fact that as soon as people got OxyContin in their hands, they learned how to crush it and inject it or snort it. Mm. Uh, so they completely ignored the social context of, of drug use because it was, again, this like neuronal-level thinking, magic bullet, bullet thinking. They also were very focused on implicitly a white middle-class clientele that was at low risk for addiction and diversion and any kind of criminal activity. So in stark contrast to the image of the black or brown narcotic user... These were reliable people, quote-unquote. And this is what gave Purdue license to do heavy marketing in those very communities. So it was suburban and rural white America that um, were the target of a, a fleet of 700 drug reps mm-hmm. who did very aggressive canvas calling and were allowed, per the FDA approval, to say that OxyContin was minimally addictive, um, I won't go into the, the, the details of the flaws of the clinical trials, but let's just leave it at the fact that FDA proved this is, OxyContin is minimally addictive based on clinical three-month clinical trials among terminally ill cancer patients. So based on that, they aggressively promoted OxyContin 
for lower back pain, other kinds of common pain, whereas opioids prior to that had been reserved for severe post-surgical pain, cancer pain. Mm -hmm. So it was a real sea change in the way that opioids were used. But all this was enabled because of the imagined white consumer. So from the very beginning, there was an imaginary around whiteness. And um, it also played into what's been a very long-standing division in our country in terms of narcotics policy and provision of two different zones for narcotics use. One is the illegal zone that we know about that is um, very much driving mass incarceration right now um, and uh, heavy narcotics-oriented law enforcement in black and brown communities. The other is this protected zone of prescribed narcotics. So that's been the case for a very long time. I'll give you an example. Um, just after World War II, mm-hmm. uh, and this was just after a lot of prohibition, narcotic prohibition in this country, the acts that made heroin illegal, the acts that made it illegal to prescribe opioids to opioid-addicted people and private physicians' offices. So there's a heavy air of prohibition in the air. Um, just after World War II, there was a narcotic opi- uh, overdose epidemic of huge proportions among middle-class white women in this country who were getting barbiturates uh, at high doses, um, who had privileged access to this um, legitimized medical use Mm -hmm. of narcotics. So this isn't the first time that this kind of separation into legal and illegal has created two different tiers of narcotics use and drug policy. Um, So there was a similar dynamic of unregulated prescribing of barbiturates. Um, So barbiturates along with other sedatives, alcohol use, and overdose rates that that rival to exceed what we're seeing now uh, with opioids. Mm -hmm. So there's long been this separation of a zone of illegal use for black and brown and a zone of legal um, medical prescribed use for whites that... um, has long supported people who are dependent on narcotics and having a protected space for their use. Mm -hmm. And so can you tell me a little bit about that contrast in terms of then what sort of therapy options exist, um, say for your white, protected, middle-class person who Mm -hmm. has now become addicted to, say, OxyContin versus um, a black formerly incarcerated individual who was addicted to a similar um, type of opioid? Like, you know, what what do therapies look like and how is that influenced by that divide? That's a a great question. The other um, elements of this protected white space that I didn't mention are, number one, what's the response? What's the policy response? Mm -hmm. So we know about the mass incarceration response when it comes to narcotics use in black and brown communities. As soon as the middle-class, white, suburban opioid epidemic became known to Congress by the late 90s, it was actually becoming obvious that there was a problem, and many members of Congress had affected family members, so they had a personal investment Mm -hmm. in what the policy response was going to be. Buprenorphine came up uh, in congressional debates as a potential solution, and while no one in the congressional records used the word white, 
they used coded language such as suburban youth mm-hmm. to indicate that there is a new face of opioid dependence, a new group of users who, quote unquote, would not be appropriate for methadone or for traditional law enforcement approaches that mm-hmm. need another approach. And that was buprenorphine, otherwise known as Suboxone, opioid maintenance treatment in private doctor's offices. So by the late 90s, at the federal level, Congress uh, Congress people were pursuing um, a reversal of 80 years of laws prohibiting private physicians from maintaining opioid-dependent people on opioids Mm -hmm. that had essentially been made made illegal in 1914 by the Harrison Act. And the only exception to that had been methadone clinics that came around uh, late 60s, early 70s that were uh, limited to DEA-regulated specialized clinics devoted only to methadone that were semi-criminalized in the sense that they had a lot of extra regulation, surveillance, and security, and were often located in poor black and brown neighborhoods. So um, very much intended for that clientele and stigmatized in terms of their imagery. So not quite a medicalized response. Mm-hmm. Um, so, that, so methadone had been the only exception to that. But by the late 90s, Congress, they were openly saying methadone is not appropriate for these suburban youth. We need something new. And mm. they passed federal legislation that legalized office-based treatment with buprenorphine, otherwise known as Suboxone. And this was clearly from the very beginning intended for a middle class and by association white clientele because they restricted buprenorphine to certified doctors. Doctors who prescribe buprenorphine have to go through an eight-hour certification course. Um, This was not something that was appealing to public sector doctors serving low-income neighborhoods. This was something that private practitioners who can charge upwards of $1,000 for an initial half-an-hour induction visit um, would pursue. This is something that a private practitioner could make a lot of money doing. And so as a consequence, we ended up with a two-tiered treatment system whereby buprenorphine prescribers are essentially available to a white middle-class clientele. It's mm-hmm. been a very, very slow uptake in the public sector. Now, let's see, it was, it was um, approved in 2002. It's now 2018. 16 years later, there's some uptake in the public sector. It still lags way behind. Mm-hmm. So from the very beginning, this was a white middle-class clientele that uh, they were going for with this separate t- treatment tier of buprenorphine maintenance. And Versus- that's, that's been one of the major federal interventions. Not a call for increased law enforcement, although Trump has talked about executing implied Mexican cartel <laughs> leaders and dealers, right? Um, but it's been buprenorphine, it's been naloxone, rescue kits, it's been a much less punitive approach, but it's been geographically and demographically targeted to these white communities that mm-hmm. um, were the targets of initially Oxycontin marketing. So basically, we have these sort of um, medications that you could be trusted to take on your own and be followed by a private practice doctor for the white middle class patients who had become addicted to some form of opioid versus methadone clinic and urban centers where um, people have to stand in long lines and kind of have to go to the methadone clinic every day. Is that? That's right. Yeah, that's very well put. And so... My personal understanding of the structure of how methadone clinics are run is very limited. So, and so can you tell me a little bit more about why people who are quote-unquote clients of methadone clinics 
why do they have to go to the methadone clinic every day to get their their prescription whereas others just get their 10-day supply or however long that is for their buprenorphine along with a naloxone kit to go home with. These requirements were written in from the beginning. Methadone was launched as a federal initiative in 1971. It was the major weapon in President Nixon's war on drugs, Mm -hmm. which we now know (laughs) that... um, he considered to be a political tool right. to suppress... Blacks and hippies. Yes, to suppress political activism in black communities and among hippies. Absolutely. So what he saw was that if he heavily criminalized drugs, mm-hmm. but also um, provided methadone as uh, essentially a method of social control. Uh, for instance, the 1965 landmark article, Randomized Clinical Trial of Methadone Maintenance, that was um, sponsored by Rockefeller University, um, and was, which was reported in the Annals of Internal Medicine, was remarkable in its reporting not so much of clinical outcomes of that trial, but of social outcomes. So they're really fixated on the fact that cri- crime, criminality, and employment Mm-hmm. were improved by uh, methadone treatment six months out. It's very rare that, especially in those days, but even now, it's very rare for you to see those kinds of social outcomes in the Annals of Internal Medicine. Mm-hmm. But that was that was the big, um, that was the soundbite from that study. And that's, that's what caught President Nixon's attention. There was some paranoia on the part of civil rights leaders around, and I don't even know if I could call it paranoia, because paranoia implies that it's somehow not in touch with reality. Um, a lot of civil rights leaders at the time were concerned that methadone was um, a deliberate act to politically suppress civil rights activism. Mm. Um, and from the very beginning, it was extremely restrictive and um, involved a lot of surveillance and control. So just as you said, there's a, a federal requirement that people appear every day for, um, for dosing in front of a nurse and for regular urine testing. And that what that means, too, is that the, at the discretion of the staff, there's a lot of leeway for patients to be punished or to be rewarded for different behaviors, right? Because they can have their dose dropped. They can have their dose raised against um, their own wishes. And a lot in my interviews with methadone patients, I, I hear a lot of power struggles with their providers around that. So there's definitely an element of social control in the methadone maintenance system. Mm -hmm. Whereas buprenorphine suboxone was intended as a step away from that. Just as you said, give someone a prescription for a month that they, it's at their discretion to use. Um, In the whole, the philosophy is to treat addiction like any other chronic disease. You know, the, the discourses, asthma, diabetes, or hypertension. Right. That addiction belongs right alongside those other uh, disorders, but the the hidden subtext subtext is only for some. Mm-hmm. You know, we're talking about treating it as a chronic disease, as a way of destigmatizing it, regularizing it, giving people who are being treated more autonomy, but only for a certain subset of the population. Right. So, with Suboxone being prescribed and made available in the way that it has been, both through um, you know patterns of 
who gets to be certified and also um, what legislations are in place, you would think that then the white individuals who are struggling or facing addiction um, would end up having sort of better outcomes at large in terms of, you know, um, are they getting over their addiction? Are they doing better? And so how do we, how did we then get to today's opioid epidemic um, where a lot of the conversation is around sort of deaths of despair in white communities and white communities, both in the suburbs and rural areas, being still very much stricken by mm. addiction? That's a great question. So a lot of my argument in my analysis of my uh, data, my mm -hmm. study of this question of how did the opioid epidemic become white, um, a lot of what I'm coming to is the harms to whites and non-whites of our system of racial capital mm -hmm. in drug policy and in healthcare. So what do I mean by that? A lot of profits were made based on this um, assumption that white middle class people were not prone to addiction. Mm -hmm. And in fact, we have pretty good indication that Purdue Pharma, the manufacturers of OxyContin, knew that a lot of their profits would be made on secondary markets, meaning people who resell uh, or trade off their pills um, outside of a clinical setting, mm -hmm. right? They've made enormous profits on that. And they've used the racial imagery of drug use to their advantage in a way that harmed white people. And then when it comes to the ways that we respond, the very fact of uh, the racial imagery of the drug war has, um, has hampered our response in white communities and non-white communities alike, because we simply don't have a strong system of public health for decades, even though the HIV epidemic hit the U.S. as hard as anywhere else. We have had a ban on federal funding for harm reduction um, interventions such as syringe exchange that have been proven to prevent both HIV and overdoses mm -hmm. um, among people who are op heroin and opioid dependent. So, you know, based on that kind of racial imagery of the drug war, we've ha hamstrung ourselves in having um, an adequately backed government-sponsored public health response to drug use. And that's hurt, hurt everyone, including whites, right? Mm -hmm. Along with the racial marketing of the aggressive racialized marketing of narcotics within this protected white space. You remember the historical example I gave was mass overdose deaths from barbiturates after post-World War II. So this, this protection of the white space of narcotics use is a... It's a false protection. You know, it's a political, it's a politically safe zone, but it's not a pharmaceutically Medically. or <laughs> clinically safe zone. Mm -hmm. um, so racialized capital within healthcare harms whites as well as non-whites. Um, and the, you could also extend that to our very system of healthcare. People in my field of addiction psychiatry, they love to point to France and to say, wow, look at buprenorphine in France. Within the first seven years after buprenorphine maintenance was approved for primary care use, they reduced overdose deaths by 80%. Mm -hmm. That sounds really impressive. And they use that statistic to argue for more for um, increasing access to buprenorphine in this country. Mm -hmm. What they leave out of the story is that France has universal health care. 
that's a big piece of the story. Right. If you can't get access to a doctor, then no prescription-based treatment is going to be helpful to you. Mm -hmm. So in the first decade of buprenorphine's approval in this country, overdose deaths went up fourfold. So that gives you a sense of the contrast. If you're working within a system of government and healthcare that promotes public health, you're going to get one result. If you work within a system of healthcare and government that doesn't promote public health, and in fact is also based upon racist ideas. You know, when I think one of the fundamental forms of resistance to things like universal health care and other public benefits in this country is that white voters think that money is public money is going to be going to black and brown people. Mm-hmm. That's one of the most potent arguments against state funding for something like that in this country. That's really So racism is a big barrier to universal health care, and it's mm-hmm. a big barrier to other forms of safety net policies that have definite public health benefits in other settings like France. Now, I'm not going to say that France is free of racism. Oh, right. By no <laughs> means is France free of racism. However, the form of government that they have there and ideas about entitlement to public benefits of the state that they have there are very different than what we have here. Mm-hmm. And our hesitance about state benefits and about health care being in the public sector as opposed to a, a highly, highly privatized profit-based system that we have here, a lot of that rests on racist ideas mm. and racial politics. So that's where I think whites are also hurt by racial capital. And so I, one more question now, thinking about your clinical practice and how you've seen, so a lot of your work has been about larger um, structures and how those affect um the movements of addiction treatment and addiction at large. And I'm wondering what you've seen in your clinical practice um, day-to-day in sort of your your patient population. Thank you for asking that. Um, On the one hand, um, what led me to my current study was seeing these really divergent patterns of clinical treatment Mm -hmm. within the hospital that I work, which is a large public hospital. And the, the way that I came around to buprenorphine there was that I noticed there was a buprenorphine clinic that was started in the public, I'm sorry, in the primary care clinic there. Mm-hmm. And the population of patients in that primary care-based buprenorphine clinic is majority white, mm-hmm. majority college-educated. College it's very different than the rest of the hospital. I mean, it's remarkable. The rest of the hospital is it's a classic, large public hospital with lots and lots of black and brown people, immigrants from all over. Um, so this buprenorphine clinic within primary care really stuck out. And that's one thing that got me interested in the story of white opioids and buprenorphine and what explained the demographic differences. On the other hand, what I have learned from my clinical practice is to see addiction against the grain. There, we still have this magic bullet thinking that, okay, so it's the drug that's causing all this damage or it's chronic relapsing brain disease that's calling, causing all of this addiction. Um, there's a counter-narrative that's starting to take hold of, as you mentioned, dis- deaths of despair. There are these two economists that made headlines by uh, reporting that the life expectancy of whites in the U.S. had declined by five years in the last two decades, largely due to opioids and overdose. Mm -hmm. Um, And so because they're economists, they actually started pointing to unemployment and deindustrialization and deaths in the Rust Belt and that kind of thing, and the fact that white Americans are facing a future that's not as bright as their forebearers, 
you know, that it's harder for them to do as well as their parents did. So those are the kinds of explanations they're holding up, which kind of, they're different than what we, what we say in addiction psychiatry, which is addiction is a chronic relapsing brain disease. It's really a matter of the molecule of the narcotic itself and the neural pathways that it's feeding into. So I, I don't want to oversimplify. There's a lot of debate about mm-hmm. that. But for the most part, our interventions are really focused on new pharmaceuticals mm-hmm. and new biotechnologies and, might I add, patentable, very profitable commodities. Because we're in a, we're in a capitalized healthcare system. You know, it's profit-driven. So what I've learned to do in my clinical practice in addiction psychiatry is to... Um, to look carefully at people who are very are successful in their treatment. Mm-hmm. So, and what I've seen, people who are successful in their recovery long term, they tend to have a very strong social network, mm-hmm. recovery network in place. Uh, it's very much about belonging. It's about mutual aid. It's about meaning. Mm-hmm. Um, the public hospital where I work, a lot of the patients I work with are coming from situations where they've been in homeless shelters for a long time, they've been alienated from their families, they don't have a lot of connections outside of the drug world. And so uh, those that are successful, not they. some of them are on medications and it's helpful, some of them aren't. But even those who are on medications, they attribute a lot of their success to finding a new community of recovery. Mm-hmm and seeing their own value as people who can contribute to a larger whole. So that's how I've gotten involved in things like art therapy, um, community gardening, urban farming for people who are in recovery. Um, I'm in, I co-lead a filmmaking group. Uh, it's called Video Stories in Recovery. People who um, are as therapy, as a therapy group, making short films about their own lives or sometimes dramatic films, comedies. This is a a group of people who get together and they storyboard together and they write scripts and then they take turns holding the camera and doing sound and editing. So it's a group process. Mm -hmm. Um, But the very act of working together on a product and also retelling stories of recovery is really important for um, seeing their own lives in a different light, their own value in a different light. And reframing themselves as people who've been through often really painful pasts and where addiction has just been a part of an effort to to survive, to cope with that. So I, I've learned to see that addiction is, of course, much more complicated than a neural pathway, but that there are so many exciting ways that we can attend to the social complexity of addiction mm-hmm. and we're, we're really we're overlooking and defunding all those things right in the, in this moment of looking for the right pharmaceutical sadly yeah and so you're working on a documentary yes and the documentary actually was born from this video stories and recovery group the filmmaking right. group um it's the story it ended up being the story of three different people mm-hmm. all of them on opioid maintenance medication for their opioid addiction and but they're not the the new face of addiction right. they are uh one woman is an african-american woman living in the housing projects on the, on the lower east side and trying to raise an adopted grandchild um 
She also happens to be a veteran. And that's another untold part of the story is the role of the U.S. military with the opioid crisis. But I won't get into that too far here. Um, and then the, the other two people are both men of Puerto Rican descent, who um, one of whom actually finds him his, a new identity, a new life for himself as an artist. He gets really involved in art therapy and then all of a sudden becomes a celebrated outsider artist and is, has his work shown in galleries out in, in the U.S. and also outside of the U.S. But it also shows that he's on buprenorphine. It shows the complexity of buprenorphine treatment and the fact that buprenorphine alone is not enough. His mm-hmm. career as an artist is the thing that kind of sustains him. him. Yeah. And then the last person is someone who reconnects with his kids while on methadone maintenance. He gets really stabilized on it, but gets preoccupied with being clean, with being drug-free, and he wants to wean himself off. And that's a story of harm reduction in a sense, that um, there is a role for these medications, You know that there are some people who really need uh, the support of a medication that prevents overdose. And in his case, sadly, as he weans himself off of methadone and um, his determination to be quote-unquote drug-free, he ends up overdosing. So it's not a story that is intended to say everyone has to stay on methadone or buprenorphine for life, mm-hmm. but he wasn't in a, he was in such a rush to become drug-free that he didn't necessarily put himself in the best um, position to, to get off of it without that kind of outcome. So anyway, the, the film, in collaboration with members of this video group, it's an effort to show the complexity, as well as the racialization of drug treatment. The first um, character, um, the woman, grandparent that I just mentioned, tries to get onto buprenorphine and runs into barriers at every turn because it's, it's clear that it's not a treatment that's intended for her. Right, structural racism. Yes, Right. And in the film, I um, show a little bit of footage from my interviews with, uh, with pharmaceutical executives and policymakers about what explains the patterns that we see now. Mm-hmm. Well, I look forward to seeing the film. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for giving me your time. It's been fabulous talking to you. Um, and I hope to have you back on the pod for more discussion. Thank you, Max. Thanks for having me. Thanks, everyone, for listening. And stay tuned for the next episode of Flip the Script.